from New York, this is Democracy Now! In the event the authorities' demands are not met within one week, take all measures necessary to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. Such measures may include the use of force. Fear is growing. Last week's coup in Niger could lead to a regional military conflict. ECOWAS, a bloc of 15 West African nations, is threatening to use force to expel Niger's new military rulers. But Burkina Faso, Mali, and Guinea have warned against any military intervention in Niger. We'll get the latest. We'll also remember Juan Ramos, founder and leader of the Philadelphia chapter of the Young Lords. And we'll look at the life and legacy of the groundbreaking Irish singer and political activist Sinead O'Connor, who's died at the age of 56. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Ukraine, Russian missiles struck a residential high-rise in the city of Kriviri on Monday, killing at least six people, including a 10-year-old girl and her mother. Dozens more were injured in the attack. One resident said she raced to the scene of the blast after receiving a panic call from a friend who lived nearby. I only heard, help me, so we jumped into our car and drove here. What we saw was pure horror, committed by the Russian—I don't want to say the word here. They hit a residential building, and her block is just next to it, so everything in her apartment was ruined. She survived and is alive, thank God. Kriviri is the birthplace of the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky. Elsewhere, officials in Ukraine's Russian-occupied Donetsk region say two people were killed and six others injured when Ukrainian artillery fire struck a civilian bus. In Moscow, Russia's defense ministry says Ukraine launched a fresh wave of drone attacks on Russia's capital, with one of the devices striking an office tower that had been hit in a previous attack on Sunday. The governments of Burkina Faso, Guinea and Mali have warned other West African nations not to intervene in Niger following last week's coup that deposed the democratically elected President Mohamed Bazoum. A Burkina Faso government spokesperson made the announcement Monday after the ECOWAS bloc of West African nations imposed sanctions and threatened to restore Bazoum by force. We warned that any military intervention against Niger is tantamount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. We warned that any military intervention against Niger would entail a withdrawal of Burkina Faso and Mali from ECOWAS, as well as the adoption of self-defense measures in support of the armed forces and the people of Niger. Burkina Faso and Mali are led by military rulers following recent coups. On Monday, Germany suspended aid to Niger after the European Union and France cut humanitarian and military aid last week. 
Meanwhile, the Biden administration has stopped short of calling President Mohammed Bazoum's ouster by his own presidential guard a coup. Such a declaration would trigger an end to U.S. military aid to Niger, where in 2019, the U.S. opened a massive new drone base. The U.S. also has about a thousand military personnel in Niger. They are saying they're now being confined to the U.S. military base. We'll have more on the coup in Niger after headlines. In Senegal, at least two people were killed Monday as protests erupted following the arrest of the opposition leader, Usman Sanko. The Senegalese government also dissolved Sanko's Patriots of Senegal party after officials accused him of inciting violent protests last month in the capital, Dakar. This is the first time a political party has been banned in the West African nation since its independence from France in 1960. Sanko is a likely candidate in the 2024 presidential election, who's popular amongst younger Senegalese voters. He's been accused of plotting an insurrection and criminal association with a so-called terrorist body, charges he and his supporters say are false. In Lebanon, fighting between rival armed groups inside the largest Palestinian refugee camp continued for a third day Monday after attempts to broker a ceasefire failed. Another four people were killed, bringing the death toll to nine. Dozens of others have been injured. Families are trying to escape the Ain al-Hilwe refugee camp, which houses tens of thousands of Palestinians, but many have nowhere else to shelter. Meanwhile, the United Nations has suspended its aid and operations at the camp amidst the violence between militant factions and members of the Fatah group. In northern China, at least 11 people are dead, more than two dozen missing after the remnants of last week's super typhoon Daksuri flooded Beijing for the fourth consecutive day. It's one of the worst storms to hit China's capital region in over a decade. Another major storm, Typhoon Hanun, is bearing down on the Japanese island of Okinawa and could turn toward mainland China later in the week. Here in the U.S., a wildfire that erupted Friday in the Mojave Desert has exploded in size, consuming more than 77,000 acres in California and Nevada. It's among dozens of wildfires burning across the United States. Elsewhere, a summer heat wave in the southern U.S. enters its third month today, with record temperatures forecast for cities in Texas and the Gulf Coast. In Arizona, Phoenix recorded a high temperature of 108 degrees Fahrenheit Monday, ending a record-breaking string of 31 consecutive days with highs above 110 degrees Fahrenheit. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says he'll authorize more than 100 new licenses for oil and gas drilling in the North Sea to maximize domestic extraction of fossil fuels. Sunak announced the plan Monday during a visit to a shell gas terminal in northeastern Scotland. Sunak insisted his plan is compatible with the UK's commitments to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. Now, when it comes to our energy security, we're still going to need oil and gas. 25% of our energy will come from oil and gas, even in 2050. Far better that we get that from here at home. 
Geologists say the Rosebank field in the North Sea holds more than half a billion barrels of oil, more than enough to prevent the U.K. from meeting its climate commitments. Friends of the Earth Scotland said in a statement, quote, burning oil and gas is driving extreme weather and killing people on every continent. Yet Rishi Sunak is gleefully encouraging the arsonists to go and put more fuel on the fire, they said. The U.S. State Department says it'll soon introduce a resolution at the United Nations Security Council authorizing a multinational armed force to be deployed to Haiti as the island nation grapples with worsening political instability and gang violence. Last weekend, Kenya's government offered to send 1,000 police officers to Haiti to support Haitian police, an offer applauded by U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Many Haitians remain opposed due to the disastrous history of U.N., U.S. and foreign interventions in Haiti. The filmmaker, artist and activist Catherine Kane, known by her initials KK, has died at the age of 84 after a long struggle with cancer. Kane founded the Haitian restaurant and cultural center Tap Tap in Miami. Her films celebrated Haitian history and culture. She also documented how the United States twice supported coups against Haiti's democratically elected President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Following the second coup in 2004, K.K. Kane helped organize a flight that brought Aristide from exile in the Central African Republic to Jamaica. The Pentagon says President Biden has selected Colorado Springs to host the permanent headquarters of U.S. Space Command, reversing a decision by former President Trump to move the facility to Huntsville, Alabama. The announcement on Monday came as Republican Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville continued to block the Senate from confirming Biden's military nominations over the Pentagon's policy of paying for employees' abortion-related travel expenses. U.S. health officials are urging states to retain more low-income people in Medicaid, as they warn too many recipients are now losing their coverage. Some 4 million people have recently been dropped from Medicaid over paperwork issues as states continue to purge the rolls after the lifting of a pandemic-era rule on eligibility. That figure is likely higher, as only 38 states have voluntarily made their data public. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken has rejected a call by Australia's top diplomat to end the Biden administration's efforts to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange to the United States to face espionage and hacking charges. The Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong made the remarks during a joint news conference with Blinken after talks in Brisbane on Saturday. We have made clear our view uh, that Mr Assange's case has dragged on for too long and uh, our desire that it be brought to a conclusion. And we've said that publicly and you would anticipate that that reflects also the position we articulate in private. A growing number of Australian elected officials, including the prime minister, Anthony Albanese, have urged the U.S. to drop its case against Assange, who is an Australian citizen. Secretary Blinken responded Saturday saying Assange was charged with, quote, very serious criminal conduct. The actions that uh, he is uh, alleged to have committed risked very serious harm to our national security to the benefit of our adversaries, 
and put named human sources at grave risk. Australian lawmaker Andrew Wilkie, who is co-chair of the Bring Julian Assange Home Parliamentary Group, rejected claims by Secretary Blinken, calling them patent nonsense. He told The Guardian, quote, Mr. Blinken would be well aware of the inquiries in both the U.S. and Australia, which found that the the relevant WikiLeaks disclosures did not result in harm to anyone, he said. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at the growing crisis in Niger where the country's democratically elected president, Mohamed Bazoum, was overthrown last week by his own presidential guard. The former president has been detained since Wednesday. Many of his top political allies have been arrested. Over the weekend, ECOWAS, the bloc of 15 West African nations, slapped sanctions on leaders of the coup and threatened to expel them by force unless they cede power within a week. This is ECOWAS President Omar Touré of Gambia. In the event the authorities' demands are not met within one week, take all measures necessary to restore constitutional order in the Republic of Niger. Such measures may include the use of force. But three other African nations, Burkina Faso, Mali and Guinea, have warned that any military intervention in Niger would be seen as a declaration of war against them as well. The countries also warned that military intervention in Niger could destabilize the entire region, which has faced a spike in attacks from Islamic militants. A Burkina Faso government spokesperson made the announcement Monday. We warned that any military intervention against Niger is tantamount to a declaration of war against Burkina Faso and Mali. We warned that any military intervention against Niger would entail a withdrawal of Burkina Faso and Mali from ECOWAS, as well as the adoption of self-defense measures in support of the armed forces and the people of Niger. Niger is a former French colony which gained its independence in 1960. Over the weekend, Niger's new rulers accused France of plotting to intervene militarily. Niger is a major supplier of uranium to France and the European Union. France is planning to start evacuating French and European Union residents today. On Sunday, thousands of supporters of the new junta attempted to storm the French embassy in the capital, Niamey. Niger has also been a close ally to the United States. The U.S. has approximately 1,000 troops in Niger. Following the coup, the troops have been restricted to a U.S. military base in the northern city, Agadez, where the U.S. spent over $100 million building a drone base. The Biden administration has so far refused to describe last week's event as a coup because doing so would force Washington to cut security aid to Niger. The Intercept reported last week that one of the leaders of last week's coup, Brigadier General Musa Salou Barmou, who had been trained by the U.S. military at Fort Benning in Georgia, 
According to The Intercept, U.S.-trained military officers have taken part in 11 coups in West Africa since 2008, including in Burkina Faso and Mali. In Moscow, the Kremlin has described the situation in Niger as a, quote, cause for serious concern. But the head of the Russian mercenary group, Wagner, has reportedly welcomed the coup. Wagner's leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, has been quoted saying, what happened in Niger is nothing other than the struggle of the people of Niger with their colonizers, unquote. To talk more about the crisis in Niger, we're joined by Stephanie Savell. She's co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. She's an anthropologist who's researched U.S. militarism in West Africa and beyond. Professor Savell, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you start off by just explaining how this coup took place, the involvement of the presidential guard, etc.? Sure. Yeah. On July 27th, um, the members of the presidential guard, so the, the president, Mohammed Bazoum's own guard, um, detained the president and uh, the, the spokesman for what they're calling the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, this is the name for the junta, um, declared that the Nigerian president was overthrown on national television um, and that uh, General Chiani, who oversees the presidential guard, uh, declared he was leading a transitional government. So the exact reasons for the coup are actually still unclear. Um, Chiani, he talked about uh, the, the need to stop the country's demise, and he was referring to um, the similar reasons for coups in neighboring Burkina Faso and Mali, because there's been so much insecurity, a rise, a huge rise of um, Islamist militant terror attacks, as you mentioned. Um, and so he was saying that because the, the country is kind of spiraling into security, the military and needed to step in. And so he he was kind of the head of this council and a, a bunch of senior military leaders stepped in to support him. Um, what's, what's confusing a little bit about his claim is that uh, th this region is a kind of hub for terror attacks. Um, there have been over 1,800 in the first six months of the year, um, but only uh, 77 deaths occurred in Niger as opposed to um, out of about 4,600 uh, in total in the region of Burkina Faso and Mali. So Niger has really managed to keep a lot of the, the, um, the attacks and the insecurity and the conflict to its border areas. It's been known to be a kind of bastion of stability and resilience in a region that's just been spiraling into chaos. So it is a perplexing claim uh, on the part of General Gianni. And could you talk to us about this rising presence of not only U.S. forces, but also other European troops uh, uh, in the country? Uh, most Americans are not aware of this growing U.S. military presence in Africa. Not at all. I, I was there in January, actually. And, you know, it was just shocking to me when I was in the airport how many foreigners uh, I was seeing going moving in and out of the country, which is, a, you know, a first for me in, in West many years in West Africa. Um, so over a thousand U.S. service personnel are in Niger, um, but lots of other countries are also there. 
France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, Canada at times have, has provided assistance. And a lot of these Western powers are um, really see, saw Niger as a, um, you know, this kind of stable democracy and were pouring security assistance, that is funding for military and police efforts, um, training efforts, uh, you know, um, a lot of weapons sales as well from the U.S. Um, and other and elsewhere. So they're pouring all this security assistance to kind of bolster this so-called democracy. Um, and you know, the the I went to Agadez to see the U.S. installation, um, the air base there. So it took it was a hundred million dollars where the U.S. spent on building this air base. It costs about thirty million dollars a year to maintain, and it is a, a massive, sophisticated insul- installation in the Sahara Desert. And the drones there, the U.S. drones, are being used in the U.S. counterterror operations, uh, what we call the post nine eleven wars. Um, in the surrounding desert area. So here it's strategically located uh, in the middle of Algeria, Libya, Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, Nigeria, Chad, that whole belt where we've seen this kind of growing unrest. Um, The U.S. is right there conducting these, you know, real operations. It's all U.S. is also located at a couple of other bases in Niger and different parts of the country um, with special operations forces, trainers that go in and out. So there's far more people actually than those uh, official 1,000 troops. There's lots of people going in and out who, who are on short stays and those don't even count towards the totals. And you mentioned the coups and uh, recent coups in Burkina Faso and Mali, but those were conducted, from what we understand, by people trained originally by the United States, officers trained by the United States. What do we know about the the uh, the coup leaders uh, in the, in uh, uh, in what is happening here? So we do know that at least one of the coup leaders, um, General Bahmou, has or maybe not a general, but um, a colonel. He's um, don't quote me on that. He so he's was definitely trained uh, by the U.S. military. I mean, I think we can look at this at an individual level. There are certainly arguments to be made that um, you know U.S. training kind of empowers certain military leaders. Um, but I think we also need to look at this as a structural issue. So what happens when the U.S. and other Western powers pour hundreds of millions of dollars into the security assistance? sector. This is basically money for the milita- military and the gendarmes, the police um, that fight the also fight the uh, insurgency, um, is that the military is really boosted at the expense of other government institutions. A recent UNDP study showed that uh, countries that have a, a oversized involvement of the military in political life and a very politicized military and a long history of military leadership in government, which Niger and a lot of these countries do, um, they're far more likely to have an ongoing pattern of military coups. So there's a lot of factors at stake that make a coup more likely. Um, But certainly the U.S. pouring all of this money and this kind of outsized uh, reliance on the military as a tool for aid to these countries uh, is a contributing factor. 
I wanted to uh, just go back to that, uh, who he is, the Intercept reporting that just last month, coup leader and, as you said, uh, Brigadier General Moussa Salubahmou met with the head of U.S. Army Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Jonathan Braga, at the U.S. drone base in Niger. Also, um, Secretary of State Blinken was there. So if you could talk about the significance of this and also talk about uranium— it, when I heard, saw all of this happening, I thought back to Joe Wilson's piece, the former um, uh, 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 State Department um, ambassador to Gabon, uh, who in 2003, a few months after President George W. Bush invaded Iraq, wrote that famous New York Times op-ed asking, did the Bush administration manipulate intelligence about Saddam Hussein's weapons programs to justify an invasion of Iraq? The piece was headlined, What I Didn't Find in Africa. And he's talking about uranium in Niger. So if you can address all of those things. That's right. Uranium is a big. Um, so, so Niger is uh, the sixth or seventh largest uranium producer in the world. Um, this is certainly a dynamic of the conflict. Uh, you know, I when I visited, uh, I visited Africa um, last year. It's the head of U.S. military Africa Command, and there is a lot of talk of you know, not just um, not just the uranium in Niger, but all of this region's resources, natural resources, because um, there are there are many other types of mining going on in this area. It's very rich um, in terms of some of these the, the the resources that go into a lot of the you know a lot of important um, you know, cell phones and and you know other kinds of of things like that. So uh, there's a, a talk of the need to pr- provide stable stability and stable governance in this area because of all these natural resources. And I think I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a big outcry against this coup in Niger at this particular moment, uh, because there are there is talk of sanctions against Russian uranium. And so, you know, this uranium has actually become a really important global source. So that's one one answer to your question. The other about uh, General Barmou. So he, um, you know, as you said, has a very, very close relationship with the United States. He has been um, he's been trained by the United States over the years. Um, works closely with um, with all of the special special operations forces that are going on uh, in Niger. And the U.S. is certainly um, in 2017. Uh, there was a special operations maneuver in Niger in which. The U.S. had four service members who were killed. Uh, some viewers may remember that. And at the time, in the U.S., people were saying, "Well, what are you know what are U.S. service members doing in Niger?" Um, and th- they were leading a raid on uh, the compound of an Islamist militant leader. And these were special operations forces um, who were working in close partnership with Barmu and the Nigerian special forces. So this is this has been an ongoing relationship. I wanted to ask you, over the weekend, a a block of 15 West African nations not only slapped sanctions on the leaders of the coup, but also threatened uh, to intervene militarily. Wondering your sense of what the potential is for this uh, this internal conflict to become a broader uh, conflict in West Africa. 
Honestly, it's very worrisome. It's the first time that ECOWAS, this bloc, has threatened military force against a coup in the region. So in uh, Burkina Faso, when the coups in Burkina Faso and Mali happened in the past few years, um, ECOWAS, uh, you know, enacted sanctions and other kinds of closing the borders and that kind of thing, but they did not threaten uh, military force. And so now with, with ECOWAS threatening military force uh, to reinstate President Bazou, and uh, and then Burkina Faso and Mali, which, remember, have these military-led governments. And so basically what they're saying is, in solidarity with the new military-led government in Niger, we're going to step in and retaliate if, you know, if these other ECOWAS countries invade Niger. So it, it's, it's, it's a real threat uh, and it's quite worrisome. I mean, I think one of the most important things to, to bear in mind is that this is an incredibly impoverished region. Uh, 4.3 million people in Niger alone are in need of humanitarian assistance. Uh, climate change has been a huge factor in impoverishing uh, people and preventing them from pursuing traditional livelihood uh, pursuits like, um, you know, nomadism and um, and herding um, and farming. The land has become increasingly arid. Um, so there's a lot of dynamics at play in, in the, the reasons that the, the conflict is happening. Um, and, you know, you, you just, it's just horrifying to think that this could um, devolve into a broader conflict between between nations. Um, talking about this broader conflict at a global scale, uh, Stephanie Seville, um, as we said in Moscow, the Kremlin says that uh, the situation in Niger is a cause for uh, serious concern. Wagner had— uh, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, has been quoted saying, what happened in Niger is nothing more than the struggle of the people of Niger with their colonizers this weekend, major protests supporting the coup, people shouting Putin, Putin, putting down France and the United States. Uh, what about this as a kind of proxy war? Yeah, I, I hate to—I hate to have us see it that way. Um, I think the, the media in the U.S. in particular is quick to frame it as a, you know, a kind of a new Cold War type situation. What I can say is that, you know, there the Wagner group is playing on anti-colonial sentiment, that's for sure. Um, and so, you know, this, what I saw when I went to the region is this is a region kind of roiling with the aftermath of colonialism. There is a ton of anti-colonial sentiment directed at the French. And, you know, it, it, this is a generation, a young generation that's coming to terms with that historical legacy and all of the injustice. And, the, you know, there's so much kind of political and ethnic tensions and rivalries that are kind of a ripple effect of the colonial era. era. So a lot of the Kind of personal grudges and and uh, and fighting that we see between the political elite are a reverberation of of colonial times, and so people are just kind of grappling with that legacy. A lot of people are just honestly furious at at this, and um, 
you know, that's a big part of what's going on. So there, there's a, a real sense, a kind of popular sentiment of, you know, the French must kind of leave us alone at any cost. And I think people popularly see Russia as, uh, you know, as an alternative, a kind of big power alternative that that might be provide a possible um you know, support and ally. But I, I don't think that there's a lot of um, action behind that sentiment, right? The Wagner group has been pretty limited in this kind of Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger region of the Sahel that I'm talking about. It's really been Mali that's worked most closely with the Wagner group, which has been implicated in human rights abuses and, you know, mass killings in uh, Mali in the name of counterterrorism. So there is that. But so far in Burkina Faso, it's just kind of a rumor that there might be working with the Wagner group. In Niger, there's, you know, people were telling me absolutely not. They haven't worked with the Wagner group at all. Um, and certainly the Wagner group might be able to provide some mercenaries on the ground, but they're not going to be providing the kind of hundreds of millions of dollars in military assistance that the West was providing. So I think it's a, it's a, um, it, it's not quite accurate to see it as, you know, either or. And certainly local governments aren't seeing uh, seeing it as a situation in which they can ally with either the U.S. and its allies or Russia and its allies. They're seeing, you know, people have said to me, like, we're, we're going to use whatever assistance is offered to us. We're going to we're going to take some, you know, guns from China and some, you know, military assistance from the U.S. and some something else, whatever each country is best at offering, you know, we'll take advantage of that. Well, Stephanie Savelle, we want to thank you for being with us, co-director of the the Costs of War Project at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs, anthropologists whose research U.S. militarism in West Africa and beyond. When we come back, we remember Juan Ramos, the founder of the Philadelphia chapter of the Young Lords, and we'll look at the life and legacy of the groundbreaking Irish singer and political activist Sinead O'Connor. Stay with us. It's been seven hours and since you took your love away I go out every night and sleep all day Since you took your love away Since you've been compares to you the Prince song performed by Sinead O'Connor that shot to the top of the charts. We're going to talk about her in a moment. But first, this is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago, as we turn now to remember one of Juan's close, longtime comrades, Juan Ramos, a former Philadelphia city council member, founder and leader of the Philadelphia chapter of the Young Lords. Juan Ramos died last month at the age of 71 after a battle with Alzheimer's. He was just 
22 when his family moved from Puerto Rico to Philadelphia, became active in civil rights in high school, spoke out against racism, police brutality, as well as poverty and housing issues in communities of color. He later helped lead efforts in the Puerto Rican community to defeat Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo's attempts to eliminate term limits. Juan Ramos went on to found and lead the Puerto Rican Alliance, which fought for bilingual education against police brutality, spearheaded a large squatters movement and abandoned government-owned houses, leading to over 150 Puerto Rican families eventually winning titles to those homes. He also served as a Philadelphia city council member, union organizer and church deacon. Juan Gonzalez, first of all, our condolences on the loss of your friend. Can you share more about Juan Ramos's life? Yes, Amy. Well, I think that it's it's really not possible to overestimate the influence that uh, Juan Ramos had on uh, the social and political and liberation struggles of the uh, the Puerto Rican Latino community, but also of all communities in Philadelphia. He was widely respected by people in the halls of power, as well as people, uh, ordinary, everyday folks on the streets of Philadelphia. You know, when he he founded the Young Lords chapter in Philadelphia, he he and the other people with him, uh, Idma Lopez-Salter, Wilfredo Rojas, the others who founded the Young Lords chapter, had a much more difficult situation than those of us who were involved in the Young Lords in New York. Of course, we were organizing in the era of John Lindsay, who was a uh, basically a, a mayor of New York who was a liberal Republican and who— was not did not tend to want to crack down on any kind of dissident movements. Uh, however, Juan and the other young lords in Philadelphia were facing perhaps the most uh, neo-fascist mayor in American history, uh, Frank Rizzo, who was an ultra-right-wing Democrat who was constantly attacking any kind of dissidents. Uh, he had a, a chief inspector of his civil affairs unit, uh, George Fensel. That was the Red Squad of Philadelphia. Uh, they were the ones who stripped the Black Panthers naked when they arrested a, a, a several of them in North Philadelphia, who beat up a, a young Mumia Abu-Jamal when he was just a high school student organizing uh, for uh, better conditions of black students in, in Philadelphia high schools. And George Fensel was the kind of guy who would go to every single demonstration and personally let any activist know that he knew their first name, he knew where they lived, uh, and he was constantly trying to intimidate folks. Uh, the Lords in Philadelphia were firebombed twice in the in the first year of their existence, and uh, no one ever found out who did the firebombings. So that was the kind of climate in which uh, Juan was able to begin organizing in the uh, Puerto Rican and Latino community at the time, and he had Amazing success. Uh, I, even though I knew him from the Lords, it wasn't until I moved to Philadelphia in the uh, uh, in the uh, mid to late 1970s that I began to actually work closely with him. Uh, and by then, he was leading the fight against Rizzo to stop the charter change so that Rizzo could not remain as mayor for life. A successful movement, and out of that came the Puerto Rican Alliance, which Juan was not only the founder but the first president of. And uh, and there were amazing things that the alliance did in its time. Uh, for for instance, he was one of the first people to talk about uh, the navy presence uh, in the islands of Culebra and Vieques, mostly because a lot of the fishermen who had been uh, who had been 
uh, pushed out of their homes by the Navy uh, in Vieques had ended up uh, moving to Philadelphia. So there was a large uh, a community of former Vieques residents who lived in Philadelphia, and they, uh, they produced a lot of solidarity efforts on behalf of those of their family members who were still on the island of Vieques. Uh, and, of course, I think probably the, the most... Uh, significant contribution that Juan made was his leadership of the squatters movement. You know, after the savings and loans crisis of the uh, late 1970s, there were thousands and thousands of abandoned homes that were federally owned because HUD had foreclosed on them, uh, but uh, no one was living in them. And so um, we in the alliance led a squatters movement to basically for people to break into the homes, uh, to the boarded up homes and make them livable again, homestead. And uh, we had hundreds of families in those homes. And uh, but the government was still threatening to evict everyone. So we started a whole protest movement. I remember uh, in uh, early 1980, uh, we led an occupation of Independence Hall, the seat of American democracy. I think the only time the Independence Hall was ever occupied by a group of protesters. Uh, and with the families and the children, everyone, we sat in at Independence Hall for a day until the police evicted us. Uh, but George Fensel was uh, so worried about the bad publicity of arresting children as well as their mothers that they basically put everybody into paddy wagons, drove them a few miles away and dumped us out in the street again. Uh, but then subsequently, I think the most significant uh, civil disobedience action was in April of 1980, when um, we were still trying to get the titles to the homes of the squatters. And uh, so uh, we decided to occupy the headquarters of Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign. Uh, at the time, Jimmy Carter was in a tough race against an insurgent, Ted Kennedy, who was trying to contest his nomination for the presidency. And they were neck and neck going into the Pennsylvania primary. And on the day before the primary, we occupied the offices of Jimmy Carter. And back in those days, the offices were key because, you know, all the mobilization of voters was done by phone banking and by the, the index cards that you had of your preferred voters. This was long before the Internet and, and really before mostly computers. Uh, and so they needed those headquarters. And we had occupied the state headquarters downtown on, uh, on Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. And so the Carter administration dispatched uh, Bill Gray, who was the dean of the congressional delegation of Philadelphia, an African-American minister, uh, who was actually a good friend of ours. And I'll never forget, it was midnight before the Pennsylvania primary. And Bill Gray meets with uh, Juan Ramos and myself in a little bar a, a few blocks away from the protest. And he says, look, the White House has sent me down here. They've authorized me to negotiate with you. Uh, I give you my word that uh, if you leave the offices tonight, because we need them for tomorrow's election, uh, you will get the titles to your uh, the homes for all the squatters. However, we can't make any announcement. We can't look like we've given in to you. But I give you my word. And I, of course, was not in favor of a of just a word. I wanted something in writing. But Juan was much more uh, wise about this. And he said, look, I've known Bill Gray all my life. Uh, I trust him. Uh, we're going to accept his word and we're going to pull out. So we did. And and uh, uh, the, the uh, 
the families pulled out. The the primary went ahead. Carter won uh, the Pennsylvania primary. And from then on, he he swept uh, Ted Kennedy in the remaining primaries. Uh, so uh, I think it was uh, important that one had that kind of practical sense. He was a revolutionary, but he also had a practical sense. You want to get things done. Uh, one of his other great accomplishments was the development of a children's festival at Hunting Park in, in Philadelphia, which became an annual you know, event attended by thousands of people, uh, basically a series of, of, of games and, and uh, uh, athletic events and others that became a fixture of the Puerto Rican community of Philadelphia. There are so many things that he was able to accomplish. Uh, of course, beside being a city councilman, beside being a, an appointee of uh, Mayor John Street in the Street Administration, uh, he was just a wonderful person with an enormous capacity for understanding how you meet the needs of uh, people who are oppressed and uh, in need of, uh, of, of organizing. And he's a great loss to the, to, to the Puerto Rican community. And I, I want to especially express my condolences to his uh, wife of many years, Ana Sotre, who herself led a, an, a, was a director of a fantastic folkloric dance group for many years in Philadelphia, and to all of the other uh, comrades of his in that city. Well, Juan, we thank you so much for that remembrance. And again, our condolences. Juan Ramos, rest in peace and power. When we come back, we will look at the life and legacy of the groundbreaking Irish singer and political activist Sinead O'Connor, who's died at the age of 56. Stay with us. The Emperor's New Clothes, Sinead O'Connor. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We spend the rest of the hour remembering the remarkable life and legacy of the groundbreaking Irish singer, songwriter, political activist Sinead O'Connor, who's died at the age of 56. She was found unresponsive last Wednesday in her London home. Her friend, the musician and activist Bob Geldof, has said she sent him text messages, quote, laden with desperation and despair in the weeks before her death as she coped with the tragic death of her son, Shane O'Connor, by suicide about a year and a half ago at the age of 17. Sinead had four children. This is part of a TikTok video. It's the last video Sinead O'Connor shared shortly before her death. You know, the way your kid, unfortunately, passing away, it isn't good for one's body <laughs> or soul, to be fair. But anyway, look, let's not dwell on that. Anyway, hi, guys. Here's my nice flat. Let me see, can I flip the camera? Oh, well, anyway, there's a bunch of flowers my friend gave me today. My nice flat. 
There is my new Martin Johnny fucking Cash guitar that I am going to write some tunes on. Sinead O'Connor rose to stardom in 1990 when she released her version of the Prince song, Nothing Compares to You. The song was on her second album, I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, which also included her own song, Black Boys on Mopeds, about the 1983 death of a 21-year-old black man in London named Colin Roach in police custody after they accused him of stealing his own moped. The police said Roach had died by suicide. The inner sleeve of Sinead O'Connor's album showed a photograph of Roach's parents standing next to a poster of their son. In 1992, Sinead performed Bob Marley's War on Saturday Night Live, then proceeded to rip up a photo of Pope John Paul II on live TV, declaring, quote, fight the real enemy. The move, a protest against systemic child abuse in the Catholic Church, of which she was a survivor, provoked widespread uproar. She addressed her SNL performance days later during an interview with Entertainment Tonight. Ireland has the highest instance in Europe of child abuse. I experienced it myself, um, and I find his presence in Ireland telling the young people of Ireland that he loved them hilarious. At least when I studied the history, I found out that the people who were responsible for telling lies in the first place were the Vatican, who, uh, through permitting the invasion of uh, countries and the, the destruction and murder of entire races of people in the name of God and for money, uh, and then their subsequent overtaking of the educational systems of all the countries that they went into. To, uh, led to um, distortion of historical fact. A week after her Saturday Night Live appearance, Goodfellas star Joe Pesci appeared on SNL and had this response during his monologue. She was very lucky it wasn't my show, because if it was my show, I would have gave her such a smack. <laughs> Two weeks after Sinead's SNL appearance, O'Connor was booed at a Bob Dylan tribute at Madison Square Garden after being introduced by Texas country singer Chris Christopherson. I'm real proud to introduce this next artist whose names become synonymous with courage and integrity. Ladies and gentlemen, Sinead O'Connor. Sinead O'Connor was set to perform Bob Dylan's I Believe in You, but as the crowd continued to boo, she responded by singing Part of War by Bob Marley, the same song she sang on Saturday Night Live. Okay, turn this up. Until the philosophy which holds one race superior and another inferior is Abandoned. Everywhere is war. 
A decade later, in 2002, an investigation by the Boston Globe shined a spotlight on sexual abuse and its cover-up in the Catholic Church. Sinead O'Connor was an ally of the LGBTQ communities, March for Abortion Rights, decades before it was legalized in Ireland. She converted to Islam and started using the name Shahada Sadakat in 2018, alongside the name Sinead O'Connor. She spoke out for Palestinian rights, respecting the Palestinian civil society call for BDS, boycott, divestment and sanctions against Israel, once saying, quote, on a human level, nobody with any sanity, including myself, would have anything but sympathy for the Palestinians. Palestinian plight. There's not a sane person on earth who in any way sanctions what the Israeli authorities are doing, Sinead said. Earlier this year in March, Sinead O'Connor was met with a prolonged standing ovation at the RTE Choice Music Awards when she received the new award for classic Irish album for I Do Not Want What I Have Not Got. And judges called her album, quote, a stunning body of work by an Irish artist, scorching with originality and songs that are as resonant today as they were more than 30 years ago, unquote. One of the last photographs of Sinead shows her beaming as she accepted the award and dedicated it to, quote, all refugees in Ireland. For more, we're joined by two guests. Jamie Manson is president for Catholics for Choice. And Alison McCabe is a music journalist and author of the book Why Sinead O'Connor Matters, which was published in May. Her new piece for Vulture is headlined, Sinead O'Connor Was Always a Protest Singer. Uh, Allison, let's begin with you. Give us that history and your response to her passing last week. Well, thanks so much for having me on the program. Um, also for describing her as a political activist. I think that's something that the world is just really catching up on now. Um, of course, I'm, I'm gutted and I'm shocked and really haven't had much sleep since Wednesday, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to join you and to talk about her music and her life and her legacy. Um, like a lot of the world, for a long time, I knew that her hair was shaved. I didn't necessarily know that that was something that she decided to do very early on in her career before the release of her first album in 87 as a, really an act of defiance against the recording label who wanted to market her on her appearance rather than the strength of her music. I knew that she had had a mega hit in 1990 with Prince's Nothing Compares to You, but I didn't know that she was not one of Prince's protégés, and that that was not a major hit in his repertoire before she recorded it and made it into a worldwide hit. I knew that she tore up a photograph of the Pope on Saturday Night Live, but I didn't necessarily know that she was trying to draw attention to the crisis, the child abuse crisis, in the Catholic Church, which we all now know was real. So it really was catching up on all of that as an adult and as a journalist that made me go back and re-examine different things that she had said, the statements that she made over the years, the music that she made, not just up into 92, but really to the end of her life. She continued to make music and she always spoke out against injustice. And sometimes she didn't say something perfectly. Sometimes her message wasn't always heard, but she never stopped trying. And I think that's really the, the key takeaway is that she never, ever, ever stopped trying. And it's not enough for us to now say that she was a brave warrior. We have to be brave warriors. And we have to have those conversations that she tried to spark from the very beginning of her career. 
Yeah, I'd like to ask Jamie Manson, uh, president of Catholics for Choice, when she tore up that uh, photo of uh, Pope John Paul II in 1992, you were living in Long Long Island in a traditional Catholic Italian family. And uh, what was your response then and how do you assess her life? Yeah, I was surrounded by men like Joe Pesci, and um, I had a very different experience, though, of that uh, incident than my family did. I, too, felt called to the priesthood the way Sinead did. And I think what's so important to understand about her is that what she did came out of great love of the church. And she said that in the recent documentary, she felt she had the right to fight this evil because of her love of the church. And uh, she felt she had a contract with the Holy Spirit to speak out and um, not to diminish the importance of child sex abuse. But Sinead understood the pervasive harm uh, John Paul II was doing, um, setting back women's rights by potentially centuries, creating the theologies that, that, that developed so much sexual shame. And she understood that this was happen happening globally. What she was seeing in Ireland had global consequences. And so it's so important to understand, you know, she's like a true prophet. She saw things no one wanted to see. She said things that no one wanted to hear. And she risked everything for that. And she basically lost everything. And a sense of, in terms of assessing the current state of things, it's important to remember that Pope Francis canonized John Paul II in 2014. So it shows you how far we still have to go and how prophetic she really was. Uh, Alison McCabe, we only have uh, two minutes to go in this segment, and then we'll doing part two and posting it at democracynow.org. But if you could then talk about the rest of her life, because every aspect was acclaim, uh, praise, pushing um, uh, the limits, uh, being attacked, but it never stopped her. It never stopped her. And, you know, she said that what happened on SNL didn't derail her career. She said it re-railed her career because it set her back on the path of what she saw as her calling, you know, as your, as your other guest said. Um, she never intended to be a pop star. That's something that just happened when that song blew up in 90. But if you look at the rest of her catalog before then and after then, she continues to make music with meaning, excellent music. Music that we really have a lot to catch up on in terms of the issues that she was raising, not just talking about child abuse, but as you mentioned at the top, you know, talking about she was anti-racist, you know, she was speaking out against sexism. She was uh, early on talking about HIV AIDS awareness and so many other issues. We could go on and on. I know we don't have a lot of time, but it was all in there. And when I saw that, you know, that was really what inspired me to reframe her narrative. And, you know, now there's this outpouring of love and my only regret is I wish she were alive to experience that. You know, it, it's 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 coming now, but I wish that she'd experienced some of that during her lifetime. Well, um, in a blog post that was widely shared, the musician Morrissey slammed the music industry, the media celebrities and others. He said, we're hypocritical and cynical for paying tributes to Sinead O'Connor only after her death. 
He wrote in part, you praise her now only because it's too late. You hadn't the guts to support her when she was alive and she was looking for you. We're going to end it there, but continue our discussion with Alison McCabe, music journalist and author of the book Why Sinead O'Connor Matters. Uh, her new piece for Vulture, Sinead O'Connor was always a protest singer. And thank you so much to Jamie Manson, president for Catholics for Choice. We'll speak to you both uh, about Sinead O'Connor and post it at democracynow.org. Democracy Now currently accepting applications for paid internships in archive and development departments. Check it out at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.